Hey everyone, welcome to the 384th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a lot to talk about this week. We are going to be hitting on the Amazon acquisition of Roomba. We're also going to be talking about some startling stats from Parks that might creep you out a little. We're talking about ethics and manufacturing connected devices again. We've got another small acquisition in the lighting sector. And wireless charging gets another FCC approval. We're going to tell you who got that and how much power they can deliver over the air. We've got a chip alliance in the wake of the CHIPS Act, and it'll affect hopefully the supply chain for IoT in a good way. We've also got a new type of proximity sensor worth mentioning. And is Apple going to release a HomePod with a display? Maybe. We'll talk about that. Our guest this week is Mark Benson, who is head of Smart Things US. We're going to be talking about the end of Smart Things retirement of the groovy programming language and its original IDE and the embrace of new Lua-based event drivers. We're also going to be talking about what SmartThings expects from Matter. We'll also hear from our sponsor, Silicon Labs, talking about their works with event coming up. And sounds like it's time before we get to the rest of the show to talk about a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Impinge. I'd like for you to take what you know about the IoT and expand it by a factor of a thousand. That's what our sponsor for this episode, Impinge, is doing. With the Impinge platform, everything can be connected, from strawberries to supply chains, from rail cars to raw materials. Impinge is creating the internet of every little thing. So if you'd like to learn more about Impinge, go to go.impinge.com slash Stacy. That's Impinge with a J. So go.impinj.com slash Stacy. Okay, Kevin, we're going to kick off this show with a correction. Last week, we were talking about the Eve Aqua, which is a Eve device that connects to your watering hose and allows you to connect it to your home kit setup or eventually, hopefully, to a matter setup. And we said that the third generation of this device had thread, and it was the first version of that device to have thread, but it isn't. Well, we is very generous of you. It was really me, and I should know better because a year ago I tested the first version of this with thread. So yes, thanks to some of our listeners for pointing out my mistake. I completely forgot about that. And I, now I wonder even more why that price bump of $50 is there for the newer version. I mean, maybe they had to put in more memory or something to that effect. We could get a review unit and then you could figure it out. That's always an option. All right. All right. More hoses. Okay. So on to the real news. This week's big news. On Friday, Amazon said it would acquire iRobot, the maker of the Roomba SmartVac and Brava and other connected home robots, but mostly the Roomba, for $1.7 billion. It's a little bit more than the annual revenue from the year before, which was $1.5 billion for iRobot. And man, the takes were hotter than hot. (laughs) First up, everybody freaked out like, oh my God, Amazon's buying this so they can map my home. That's an okay take. 
I mean, it's possible that Amazon will get, I mean, it's totally real that Amazon will get more information from owning Roomba. Many people brought up the Astro, which was Amazon's roaming security robot that also had a, I don't know, a cool, not a cooler, a thing on the back that you could stick. Yeah, like a little backpack space that you could put stuff in and it did not mop or sweep. And the reviews came out in April of this year, and most people were like, eh, I really don't need a Madam A that follows me around the house, and it doesn't really do anything else but just get in my way. At least my Roomba vacuums. The most obvious thing is the Astro actually hasn't come out into the public market yet. Maybe Astro was just Amazon seeing if they could do something hard with the roaming robot, realizing that their version sucked. People did complain about it falling downstairs. And they said, you know what? We should just buy iRobot. This is just going to get us there so much faster. Yeah, my Roomba has never fallen downstairs. I can honestly say that. It's very good at what it does with mapping and intelligence and so on. Yeah, so I wrote something up on this. You can see the map it made of my home. You can see that it's not super detailed, although it does know where carpets versus hardwood floors are. I was like, go Roomba. Those two things were kind of the big, easiest takes of the day with this deal. I think two more interesting takes have to deal with Amazon buying its way into like potentially really innovative area of the smart home. And by that, I mean this idea that Kevin and I talk about that even Amazon talks about with their ambient intelligence in the home. We talk about it being context aware, the smart home, and this idea that The devices in the home need to share information with each other about like where people are, what people are doing. And that way the home can actually become much more responsive to your needs. Cohesiveness. That's what's missing there with the context, I think. Yeah. So like I can walk into a room and a motion sensor will be like, boom, the lights are on. But knowing that the room I walked into was the kitchen and turning those lights on and then sharing the information that I'm in the kitchen could actually be much more Instead of just turning the lights on, the fact that I'm in the kitchen could indicate, you know, based on the time of day that I'm about to cook something. So maybe then I get an option to preheat the oven or maybe it's like, oh, well, if she's going in to cook, maybe I should turn on the air purifier because cooking releases a lot of VOCs. There's a lot of options that could happen there, but we don't have that today. Yeah. Like don't go to the fridge and have that snack. I have all your health data. <laughs> or it locks the fridge before my kid gets there because they're like, no, no, the oven's on and it's cooking. Your food's going to be out in 15 minutes. Don't eat a whole gallon of ice cream. That's a bad idea. <laughs> anyway, those are the kind of things like it needs that kind of context about what we're doing and also a self-knowledge about what other devices in the home are doing. And that's actually a, probably a more effective smart home robot situation than Astro, in all honesty. Roomba was actually trying to build something like that with what it called its robot OS. And this came out earlier this year. Colin Angle talked about it. He is the CEO of iRobot. He talked about this idea of the context aware home and building an OS for the smart home that lets lots of devices kind of communicate into this pool of knowledge um, that gets us there. And I thought that was really compelling. My bet is Amazon thought that was pretty compelling too. And I'm a little frustrated that with Amazon buying iRobot, and then if they decide to build out this robot OS for the smart home, I'm worried that consumers won't get as much say, because it's a lot easier to say, "Mm, I don't like the privacy policies associated with 
iRobot or I don't trust them, I'm going to not purchase this. It's easier to say that for a robot vacuum. It's harder to say that when it's Amazon because they own a lot of aspects. They own Ring. It's a platform choice then. So that's going to exclude you from a lot of devices and, and experiences if you choose not to. Exactly. And then for the vendors, they don't have as much power to say to Amazon, no, I don't want to give you this data. I want to keep this data to myself. If they were working with iRobot, they would have a lot more choice because iRobot can't make as many unilateral dictating decisions there. Ultimately, instead of maybe going where the device makers and the consumers want the smart home to go, it's going to go more towards where Amazon wants it Mm -hmm. to go because Amazon has so much market power. Kind of like Sidewalk, if you ask me. Yeah, Sidewalk is, I mean, it could be great, but it's also going to be what Amazon wants it to be, not necessarily what it should be. Correct. I wanted to add one point because I agree with you and your take about the smart home itself being a robot really resonates with me. And when I think about what Amazon just got or is trying to get, because this has to clear uh, approvals, which that could be very interesting. I don't know that it will from a regulatory standpoint, but that's not for us to decide. So I'll, I'll assume that it does temporarily. In a sense, robot OS and Amazon potentially are kind of doing for people and the home what matter is doing for devices. And that's a really big thing. And I, and I don't want people to miss that point. And you may disagree with me. I mean, if it's a bad point to make, then people don't think about it. But no, I think it is. I, so we, we talked about matter. And one of the things that's becoming very clear is matter is going to be essential for commodity devices. And the real value in the smart home, once we get that layer of interoperability down there, is going to be around services and building this ambient intelligence. So this is the next step. It's the next layer up for product differentiation between big players in the market. And it would have been nice to see that product built by a smaller company trying to bring out a good service. Or a consortium of people like that are doing with Matter. Yeah. And Amazon has to go here. Originally, Amazon won in the smart home in terms of getting, because it had Madam A, because it made it so easy to build connected devices that worked with Madam A. But Matter makes all of that obsolete. So now Amazon has to go one layer up. And it is. And this deal makes 100% of sense from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But it is a little worrisome. I'm not worried about Amazon having maps to my home. Could they look at my furniture with a camera and say, oh, this person, we should market furniture to this person because their furniture is out of date and old. Their Roomba keeps jabbing into the base of their furniture and just scratching it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who wants that? But I'm less concerned about that. And that was the immediate hot take everybody had. Oh, they're going to know the internal layout of my home. Why do they care? Yeah, if you can see, y'all actually now have the layout of the upper floor of my home, just so y'all can see and be like, oh, I appreciate you sharing that. And guess what? I don't care. (laughs) I just don't. No, no. You know what I mean. If if, if I were a a vendor, I don't care. You can see that I have lots of rugs. You can sell (laughs) me a rug cleaner knowing that I have a dog and a rug. Nope, nope, still don't care. (laughs) All right, fine. All right, so that's our lukewarm take, our cool take after several days of pondering this move. 
Let's move on to something that is also creepy (laughs) from a privacy perspective. (laughs) Parks Associates, they interview 10,000 broadband home owning people every quarter. I think it's every Every quarter. quarter. Yeah. And they, they track all kinds of stuff, smart home data, security data, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, broadband data. Their latest research says that there are going to be 95 million smart tags sold in the U.S. in 2027 that only about 8% of U.S. internet households currently have a smart tag, but 32% of those smart tag owners have reported using the device to track another person without that person's knowledge. I am shocked. And and I'm not being sarcastic. I am shocked. Like, I would never, never do that. I mean, mean, just just to get my family's location on iPhone was an hour conversation, you know? And I would abide by whatever they said. I mean, ultimately, they have control over that because they can deny my access to that. If you don't know somebody slips a tag in your bag or your car, you don't have control. And this gets us back to where I think you're going. And that's the consent issue again. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and I'm like, you know, I try, I use my Tesla to track my husband, you know, when he goes like places, I can't do it during Christmas. He's told me not to, because I have been known to find out what stores (laughs) he's parking in front of to try to figure out my gifts. But he knows that I do that. And I, I actually told him because otherwise it would be creepy. He doesn't know every single time I do it. So I'm, I'm like, do people just stick it? Like I can see someone sticking it in their car and being like, Realizing, oh, hey, I can see, you know, where that person is. I can ask them to go to the grocery store. Not necessarily creepy tracking, right? Just Right, like, right. Useful tracking. Yeah. But even that sort of thing without talking to the person who's being tracked is wrong. Yes. I don't know how else to say this. You need to tell people. And putting a tracker in your child's backpack, like maybe it's your, your six-year-old, you know, and you're like, I need to know where they are. So you stick it in their backpack. Tell them. I agree. I wonder, just because this seems abnormally high to me, and and maybe it isn't, I don't know, but I wonder if this is people who even just tried it once just to see if they could, in a sense. Yeah, maybe, but but no, that is not okay. (laughs) But no! You can't can't do that. This is something that Kevin and I talk about because we have these devices in our home and we can see... We understand very deeply after playing with so many devices, what kind of information they tend to share and can share. And we think forward about the repercussions of like being able to see what type of food someone is cooking in the oven. So it's, it's worth when you bring these devices into your home, sitting down and explaining to people, you have to, you can't just be like, you can't just like stick a connected sleep tracker in your room or under your mattress and not explain to someone that it's there and then also explain what it does. It's not enough to say, hey, this is here, but you have to say this is here and it does this. And Kevin, you actually have this with your Tesla. Yeah. Well, to be honest, we have it with every device. We actually have the conversation. We have this very conversation before anything gets set up in the house and I think it's important because the family needs to be comfortable in their own home, right? If I put myself in their shoes, I understand. It doesn't matter how many gee whiz bang features something has if you're giving up too much, too much privacy or, or privacy that people don't want to give up, right? So yeah, with the Tesla, I mean, normally we do have this conversation, but interestingly, we didn't have it before the Tesla. And it wasn't until after we took delivery that 
I looked deeper into the terms of service and data privacy and what is shared, and then explained a few weeks after we had it where all the cameras are in the car, not just the ones outside. They didn't really care about the outside cameras, but my family was really shocked and I'd say upset that they were in car cameras and they didn't even see them until I pointed them out. Um, so there's a, you know, conversations on what, what do they do with that data and how often do they take pictures and so on and so forth. I mean, we've taken the trade off of convenience over data privacy for the Tesla because we all like it in general so much, but we had the conversation regardless. So this isn't just a device owner problem. If you're a device maker, you need to actually share with people in a very easy to understand way at purchase, either through like a label on the box, like a nutrition style label, the types of sensors that are on there, what those sensors are recording and sending back. And I would say how that data gets used. That's a lot. Maybe it's probably a QR code that people, and not everyone's going to read it, but there's a potential opportunity here. And I know it'll never happen, but some of that information is readily available when you're doing your product research. I know not everybody does product research. So to account for that, if you're buying from an online store, for example, maybe I'm buying, let's just use Philips Hue as an example, and I add some things to my cart, I would love actually, I know it's a barrier to the sale, but I would love to see, okay, before you check out, these are the terms of service for what these devices do, where the data goes, what sensors they use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to accept that before you actually make the purchase because at purchase, you're just there to purchase, right? You No, like before you take delivery, before you even place the order, it wouldn't hurt to, to have that little check-in. I agree. Maybe I should do my ideal a smart device disclosure just disclosure <laughs> label and see see what that entails. We've talked to companies that are we've talked to organizations at CMU has one consumer reports has talked about this a lot. We won't go into any more of this, but I did think it was worth mentioning when I saw that astonishingly high number. I'm like, "Come on, y'all. Be better." Mhm. Okay. Speaking of crappy ethics in the IoT department. <laughs> be better. <laughs> yeah, be better. Epson, they have come out saying, basically, Epson has hard-coded an end of life into their software that runs their ink- some of their inkjet printers. And this is basically Epson's like, hey, our connected printers, we recognize that some of these devices they are at risk of some of the ink in there spilling if it's not used over a certain amount of time. And thus, the device no longer works. So basically, before it breaks, Epson's going to shut it down, because they're worried that it might break. And they did not disclose that prior when people purchased this. Yes. And so here's my, you know, I think it's just generally crappy to do something like this regardless, especially because if you have a connected device with sensors, you can actually check and be like, hey, this is about to happen. And then instead of killing the device, you can say, hey, based on our sensor readings, your printer is about to have a problem. That is a much more consumer friendly way to deal with this. But regardless, if you're going to do something like this, I think you need to do two things. One, You have to disclose an end of life at purchase. You have to say this device will work for the next five years. Two, I think given where we are with like plastics in the water and PFASs in the air and climate change, you also need to then say, 
And these devices, you have to prove that these devices and obsoleting them quickly, you have a place to put that hardware in damaging stuff in a way that's recyclable or not going right into the environment. So you can't basically make money without telling people exactly what you're trying to do and then be responsible for the waste such a strategy is going to entail. Yeah, this is this is just a really poor decision on Epson's part. I don't have any Epson printers now. I have in the past. I did not encounter this. There is some software for Windows users that can that Epson has that you can bypass this, but it's only temporary, so you can just print X number more pages. It's not like thousands and thousands or six months of extra life or anything like that. That's not a fix, and that's that's just poor. Yeah, we hate you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Done. More of my regulatory things. All right. Some fun news. I was kind of surprised by this. So last week when we were doing the podcast, I didn't see this, but my bad. Fiat, the lighting company, they make all the fancy, fancy, what, what do I call them? Uh, Edison bulbs. style bulbs. <laughs> I used to have a bunch of them. They have acquired the LifeX assets from LifeI Labs. And now they're going to own the LifeX brand. And you know what? Good for them. I actually think it'll it'll help the LifeX brand because I see Fiat bulbs and have purchased them in Lowe's, Home Depot, and Costco, for example, both regular and smart bulbs. They work. They're in, relatively inexpensive. You know, they're just like my. Uh, let me go get some smart bulbs. But maybe those will uh, be a little more prominently displayed and available through those other outlets. Yeah, and LifeX has struggled. They've always been expensive. Well, it's because they put Wi-Fi in very early on. They, they didn't, I don't want to say cheap out, but you know, no, they had no, a bill of materials. They had hardware that you know was ahead of its time to some degree, and the price point reflected it. And others came along, and when things were cheaper, they were able to have competitive products at lower prices. Yeah, so good there. All right, guess what? If you are a fan of over-the-air wireless charging, and really, who isn't? <laughs> It's been having a moment. All of this year, we've been seeing some of these are probably overhyped. Some of these are legit. And this week, Energis, I think is how you say it. I, I really That's how I say it. Energis. It's like energy plus us. Energis has received FCC approval for sending 15 watts of conducted power over any distance. And so it's watts up power bridge transmitter is going to be approved by the FCC, which means we should see it hit products eventually. This is big. The FCC in March of this year, they actually approved with Asia, which is another wireless power delivery company. They actually approved, gave them approval to deliver five watts of power to devices over the air. So 15 is pretty significant. Now, the way this is going to work is you have to have a special chip in your transmitter and in your receiver. So any device you want to have charge wirelessly is also going to have to have a special chip. So in this situation, what you would have is a device in probably a couple rooms in your house. And when something that has the appropriate chip is in that space, it will be able to absorb power over the air. For the home, yeah, you can charge your wearables and things like that. I think it's way more interesting for something like charging sensors in a retail setting or an office setting or a factory setting, a place where you have 
asset tracking tags, for example, that are moving all the time, being able to charge those by just placing them in a room or putting some sort of device like this inside a cabinet and then storing like your tools in there and having trackers on your tools. That's where this becomes really exciting, I think. I would agree. Two two thoughts come to mind. One, I'd I'd like to see some of the outdoor connected camera brands adopt Mm. this because, you know, every three to six months, I have to go up on a ladder to pull down a camera and recharge the battery and then put it back. It's easy to do. It's just just one more thing to do, right? Um, And secondly, I think, let's see, I started going to CES in 2005. And every year, and I think you're going to know what I'm talking about, there's a little section in the South Hall outside the press lounge where it's the wireless power, everybody. And every year it's the same promises and and nothing really comes to market. I finally feel <laughs> that after all this time, this has potential to actually appear on the market. So maybe this January we'll actually see some demos and get some... Uh, you know, like I'd love to just, hey, I've got, uh, let me put your chip in my bag and connect it to my phone or something, whatever, just for, and let me, let's charge while we discuss this, right? It's anything that would like wow me. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, CES is coming <laughs> you up. Don't say, you don't sound as, as, uh, I mean, no, I get it. Optimistic. And some of these, some of these partnerships that have been announced feel like, like Asia has a deal with, French smart home company that we should see actually devices coming out next year. So let's just cross our fingers and hope. I hear that every year, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling better this time around. Yeah. All right. Other news. Oh, chip news. So President Biden signed the Chips Act this week, and that's going to give us $52 million to invest in semiconductor manufacturing. There's also money for R&D and other things in this bill, but everyone's excited about the chip manufacturing side because, my goodness, <laughs> we've had a giant chip shortage. This mm-hmm. isn't going to alleviate the chip shortage right away. It is going to help companies invest more in manufacturing here in the U.S. Companies actually have plenty of investments here in the U.S., but a lot of those investments are at the highest level. So, Intel does new fabs, but they're for making the highest end server chips. It's a little unclear because some of the new manufacturing plants that have been announced are also at the high end. And a lot of the shortages have been around automotive and Wi-Fi chips, for example. And those are not necessarily, they're not made using the latest manufacturing process. And so they're usually made in older fabs. So I'm not, again, I'm sure this will help but I don't know how exactly this will help. But Qualcomm and Global Foundries, which is a fab company, they basically have said, hey, we're going to sign an agreement so Global Foundries will make more of our chips, specifically those related to automotive and IoT chips. That's for Qualcomm. And this is because Qualcomm's like, hey, everything is becoming a computer. So everything needs more silicon. So let's just announce this deal. This is basically like gift wrapping the chips act. Mm-hmm. Speaking of chips. Yes. This is sort of about chips. Okay. The Espressive ESP32 board, specifically the 32, the 32S2 and 32C3, which, you know, we all have those on our mind. 
there's nothing new about those chips. <laughs> However, that's a good thing because I did not know that Espressif had what's called ESP Wi-Fi CSI software. And it can be run on any of those Espressif chipsets that I just mentioned. So that's cool. Why is it cool? Because they can use it to detect movement using Wi-Fi. We've talked about this many times before using RF to see if somebody's in a room, if they're moving, maybe they're sitting, maybe they've fallen. But this actually does it strictly with these little ESP Wi-Fi chips. The way they describe it almost makes it sound like a radar type implementation because they're, they say they're using channel state information. So they're measuring the signal strength, amplitude, phase, signal delay, etc. But they say it's accurate enough that they can detect when somebody is breathing as well. So again, no sensors involved, just using Wi-Fi and the software on these Wi-Fi chips. So this is interesting because there's already this capability that's actually being built into Wi-Fi chips today. So a company called Cognitive Systems and a company called Origin Wireless both offer Wi-Fi sensing already. And Cognitive has a deal with Qualcomm, Origin has a deal with some other chip companies. And what's happening is the goal is to build sensing capabilities into as many Wi-Fi devices as we can. This mirrors that, but it's on an ESP32. And that is one of the most common chips used in sensors and other IoT devices. It is a much lower power. It's a processor chip. It is not a radio chip. So adding this Wi-Fi board with this capability gives you that ability probably at a lower power than most of the other devices, which means you could possibly put it on a sensor. I don't know if you could or not, but this has two benefits. It provides more context in a way that is like not fooled by like a person sitting still. So unlike a normal motion sensor where you're like, oh, the person has left the room because they're so still. Um, so it, <laughs> Turn it, out the lights. Yeah. But it, it could be, and it isn't today because the resolution isn't fine enough. So it can't tell like, it can only tell big movements, not small movements. It's not like radar, which can do smaller movements. But it could eventually be used for things like fall detection. And having that ability in more devices and more places is probably kind of neat. So Yeah, and the fact that you don't have to upgrade hardware to get this capability, I think, is huge. Yeah, so being able to put this, yeah, because the other stuff, you have to have the new firmware running Correct. on the chips. All right. Okay, so you could try it out and see if it's worth paying for the other solutions or just keep going with this. Final bit of news, Apple. Mark Gurman, you know, the guy who's got the in at <laughs> Apple, he says there's some new Apple smart home devices coming, including an updated HomePod mini, a new fancy HomePod, and possibly a smart speaker with a display and some sort of kitchen iPod. He specifically says that the, the HomePod with speaker, FaceTime camera, and Apple TV functions, as well as the kitchen accessory may not see the light of day. And I would believe that. I'm sure Apple's always prototyping things, but I still think they need a smart display based on the iPad. I mean, it's to me, it's a no-brainer. It's not like you need to spend a ton of R&D to make that work. Int more interesting, though, to me, even though I want to see like an iPad in my kitchen, HomePod with speaker, FaceTime camera, and Apple TV functions, I'm wondering if that's along the lines of a TV tie-in like a surround sound speaker. 
right? Oh. You know, a sound bar or something that people are already going to buy. So it's kind of like, hey, you get awesome sound and it's got a camera in it that you can use for FaceTime and it's got the Apple TV functions and that will show your smart home and it's got Siri and so on and so forth. I could see that be a decent product for them. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay. All right. Let's see. That concludes the news segment of the show. But now let us go to the Internet of Things podcast hotline, which is sponsored by Silicon Labs. Specifically by Works With. It is Silicon Labs' go-to developer conference for building the skills needed to create impactful connected devices. In September, Silicon Labs is bringing together global technology brands, ecosystem partners, and industry experts to drive the most exciting advances in the IoT industry. We're going to see keynotes, a lot of good stuff, and you can learn more at workswith.scilabs.com. And with the IoT Podcast Hotline, every week we take your questions and we try to answer them. And if you call us at 512-623-7424, you will get a chance to ask us your question and be entered to win a monthly prize. This prize for the month is the Play Lights and Sync Box. So basically, yes. it's Hue Lights. It's a little converter that has an HDMI cord. You can stick it into your gaming system. You can stick it into your TV. And then you get two lights that basically create cool light patterns that match what's on your monitor or your TV. I have it and I love it. That's all you need to know. There you go. So you'll be entered to win if you call us at 512-623-7424. Plus, we might answer your question. All right. This week's question comes from Chris. And it's a question we get a lot, but, you know, we're right on the edge of matter support. So let's answer it again. Hey, Stacy. Chris Coffey from Orlando, Florida. So Stacy and Kevin, my question is, I'm thinking about doing some upgrading around the house. Um, have an old smart things hub that I want to, you know, switch over to Hubitat, um, want to get some outdoor speakers, want to add some things to the house. With Matter coming out, should I wait? I think we're a month or two out from them, uh, you know, starting to see things. But, you know, that's my question is, should I wait on updating things or are there certain things that I'm good to go ahead and update right now and not worry about? Love this show. Uh, thanks for all that you guys do. Thanks. Bye. Okay, Chris. Yeah, getting rid of your old SmartThings hub, you know, switching over to whatever platform you want. That sounds great. You could do that today. Most of the new hubs that are on the market are going to be Matter compatible. I would just check before to make sure. Like Hubitat, they've said that they're going to support Matter. Actually, the new SmartThings AOTech hub will also support Matter. You know, just throwing that out there. Um, we'll talk about that later, actually, in the show. And I would wait, though to get your outdoor speakers, some of your other stuff. A couple things to think about with Matter. If someone said they're going to support Matter, then you you probably should be okay. A lot of the devices that have bridges, like the Philips Hue bulbs or like Lutron, if they've got a bridge that they've said they're going to update, feel free to buy stuff and just go to town. If it is not something that's supported by Matter, like it isn't clear that a speaker is going to be a Matter device. Video cameras, for example, aren't matter-capable devices. Appliances are not matter-capable yet. So if you're dealing with a device that isn't matter-capable, then yeah, just look and see if it works with your hub. That's fine. But everything else, I would wait. I get this question. I understand it. And I always hate to tell people to wait. But when something comes along that we expect to be this transformative, and the fact that it's just around the corner, I would wait. 
I would wait on anything. I, I agree. I, I'm glad you brought up the the non-matter supported devices because you don't need to wait for those. You know, video cameras, for example, don't wait for that. Video you need doorbells. something new. Yeah, exactly. And that may change in time. Matter may. Yeah, they're actively looking at like expanding the spec to support it, but that's not going to happen in the next year or two. So you can just right. go to town. I agree. I agree. But but everything else, I probably would wait. And I will say, so I've talked to people who've been at, there have been several testing sessions, testing and certification. What do they call those? There's been several of those events this summer, and I have heard back from people who have participated and brought their devices, that their devices are working really well, and these things are going really well. So I do expect that we'll see matter this fall. We won't get another delay. If they make a liar out of me, I'm going to be very cranky, but I really am (laughs) optimistic. I know y'all are like Stacy are always optimistic. I am, but this would be so important for the industry. Okay. So that's where we are in that. If you would like to give us a call at 512-623-7424, please do so. And you will be entered to win something really cool. All right. That concludes this segment of the show, but please stay tuned for Mark Benson, who is the head of Samsung Smart Things in the US. He is going to be talking about Samsung finally transitioning off of Groovy and where it's going after that. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Silicon Labs. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. And this week's sponsor is Silicon Labs. And I have Matt Johnson, the president and CEO of Silicon Labs here with us. Today, Matt is going to talk to us about WorksWith, which is Silicon Labs virtual IoT conference coming up September 13th through 15th. Hello, Matt. Hey, Stacy. Thank you for having me. So this is going to be the third annual Works With, and it's one I'm excited to be a part of again this year. But for everyone, can you share a little bit about what Works With 2022 is going to look like? Sure. So Works With, in its third year, has really become the go-to developer conference for the IoT space. Uh, We bring together all the major ecosystems, design partners, and developers from across our industry. The agenda's big. Uh, We have over 75 technical sessions and workshops and great keynote sessions, if I say so myself. The conference is free and virtual, so anyone from around the world can attend. And I also think it's just an exciting time to bring our industry together as we see the space we all know and love really accelerating. We're also seeing initiatives and capabilities like Matter, Sidewalk, Security, Machine Learning, all gaining momentum and relevance in the space. So I think it's a a really great time for the industry to come together. Okay. And speaking of keynotes, can you give us a teaser of what we can expect in these sessions? I'm excited to be opening this year's Works With conference, along with some great guest speakers from both Amazon and Google. And as part of that, we're going to be diving into the state and impact of smart connected devices across our space in the home, in cities, industrial and commercial applications. We'll also be discussing what's on the horizon for the IoT and really how we all work together better to design and bring great new solutions and experiences to life. And of course, we'll have some exciting announcements from Silicon Labs as well. So Works With is September 13th through 15th. It is virtual. And where can our listeners go to learn more about the event? The the best place is our website, workswith.scilabs.com. If you go there, you can find the agenda and all the signups for the workshops. 
And remember, registration is free, so we hope you'll be able to join us. And again, that website is workswith.scilabs.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Mark Benson, who is head of Smart Things US. Hello, Mark. How are you doing today? Hey, Stacey. Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Man, it has been a journey. Um, <laughs> and you, you just reminded me, Smart Things, which is a it's one of the OG smart home platforms. This is its 10th year, so congratulations there. Thank you. Yeah, so y'all are concluding a process that y'all began two years ago, which was to kind of transition from being, well, there was a lot there. There was transitioning from being a hardware company. Y'all were also getting rid of the Groovy IDE, which had been there from the beginning. Can you talk about why y'all started that transition? Yeah, so like like you said, this year is the 10th anniversary of SmartThings as a company and eight years since the acquisition by Samsung. So there's so much that's changed um, in that time in the smart home space. You know, since 10 years ago, SmartThings has really been at the forefront of the smart home space, aiming to provide experiences that any human being can use to connect their homes and control a multitude of devices from a variety of manufacturers. And those concepts of interoperability, great partnerships, and also ease of use for our customers, those have been our guiding lights since the beginning. And we've achieved some significant growth since that time in the number of users and devices and really fueled in a big way from the acquisition from Samsung. And with that growth, we've also had to evolve our technology and we've made some notable enhancements along the way to improve the platform, the experiences on the platform, while still keeping a focus on facilitating that open and interoperable uh, smart home. And I think, Stacy, the last time that we talked on your podcast was two years ago. And we made an announcement at that time about our intentions to responsibly retire legacy hubs, which we did, to responsibly retire the legacy classic SmartThings app, which we did. And we began this process of evolving the way that smart apps are developed, going from Groovy-based smart apps to API-based, and also device-type handlers, how those are developed and deployed, moving from groovy in the cloud to Lua drivers that can run locally and also be shared so much more easily within the community without copying and pasting, which is what happened with the groovy device type handlers in the past. And so those are some of the reasons why we've been making those changes and wanted to talk with you here today just to share some more of the things that we're uh, we're doing right now and some upcoming changes that you can expect. Okay, so let's dig into some of this here. So we'll start with hardware because it's tangible and everyone loves hardware. You all got out of the hardware business a while back, as you mentioned. I know I have the latest AOTech hub, but you were still supporting the V2, V3, and your SmartThings Wi-Fi hubs, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And with the AOTech hub, that hub is going to be upgraded to Matter in the future when it comes out. Also, yes? Yes, so we're uh, we're committed to Matter. You know, we've been uh, behind um, Matter from the beginning when it was uh, Chip, and are very excited about that. As I mentioned from our beginnings, we've really been focused on interoperability, which was really like the wild, wild west. You know, ten years ago, and even today, it's still fragmented. But Matter is really bringing that together. So we're very excited about that, and excited about 
all of the uh, support that it's gotten in the industry uh, to be able to bring uh, bring that together. So we are we're committed to supporting Matter, and we intend to support it on all of our uh, Smart Things um, hubs. So. So that'd be V2, V3, AOTech. We're also bringing the hub functionality to more devices in the Samsung product line as well, including TVs, family hub refrigerators, and um, Galaxy devices as well. I know this isn't a hub story, but I like to I like to get the easy stuff out of the way. So Groovy has been around for a while. I remember using Groovy-based apps. Because y'all have allowed people to use the API over the last few years, I know that most of the stuff that I have been building as I test out smart things again, has been the API. So talk to me about like how many people are still using Groovy or good question. You know, it's the the use of Groovy has been has been really useful to date that has allowed developers in our community really an enormous amount of flexibility. And over time we've seen less and less use of Groovy smart apps as the uh, the app experience has improved. So we've had a better um, experience for just creating rules in the app, for example. We also have the rules API, as we were mentioning before, that uh, makes it easy to create simple or complex rules that also can run locally on the hub. And because of those features that have been improved over time, there's become less and less of a need for writing Groovy smart apps. There has been a decreasing uh, reliance and need on Groovy over time that we that we've seen. Um, and we've also, at the same time as we're, you know, on the 10 year anniversary this year, we're really looking forward to, you know, what is, what does the smart things platform need to be for the next 10 years? And we've been, we've been working on that for some, some time. And one of those transitions that we've uh, known that we need to make is really transitioning beyond that groovy framework. So last year, uh, you, you probably know about this or heard that we, we enabled local processing on the hub. So it allows some commands and automations to execute locally without relying on the cloud. And that's really um, made smart home experiences faster, more reliable, and also at the same time have appeared seamless to the user. You know, with all that, now ready to take the final step in transitioning smart things for the future of IoT. And so starting in September, so September 30th, we will begin transitioning to an improved SmartThings platform. And this upgraded experience, in this upgraded experience, some smart apps, Groovy smart apps, devices, device type handlers, and automations will no longer be supported. So Groovy DTHs, smart apps that are built on Groovy, and the developer IDE will be removed from the SmartThings platform. So edge drivers that are using Lua, those have replaced the legacy Groovy DTHs for controlling devices. And um, Edge obviously reduces that need to send those commands to the cloud for processing and they're processed right, right on the hub. And we, you know, we have a standard set of DTHs that SmartThings has provided and managed for a, a wide variety of common device types. And then of course, people have been able to develop their own and we're doing the same thing with Lua. So there's a set of smart things managed drivers that work with a very wide variety of devices that are there. And so uh, that will be the same going forward that smart things provides those standard drivers to use. But in addition to that, the community can develop their own drivers 
in Lua that also can run locally, et cetera. So that transition is now uh, beginning. And so, as I mentioned, we'll be doing that transition in September, September 30th here coming up. And by doing that transition, that means it will shut off. So you're currently doing that transition. Yes, that's right. Okay. I know that I have downloaded many a device handler over the years, but do you have a sense of which ones are popular and which ones still need to be, I guess, translated over to Lua or rewritten in Lua? Are you communicating actively with your outside developer community? Yeah. So there's, um, in terms of the, the device type handlers themselves, we have for a long time, as devices become uh, commonplace and used by the widest variety of uh, users in our user base, um, we have incorporated those drivers into our standard um, set of drivers that are available for for all customers, and so we we watch that um, we watch that regularly. We've um, made improvements to that core uh, library of um, drivers over time, and that same thing has happened now with with Lua drivers. And so uh, we are um, have really targeted the the most common set of those devices and have transitioned those DTHs um, already over to Lua. And there's always um, niche devices, you know, random devices that maybe aren't used by a wide variety of customers, but still are important for the community. And those those can still be transitioned over to Lua. Uh, but part of the communication process around all of this is to inform the community that if they have DTHs that they have developed over time for some of these more niche devices like that, uh, that they can they can transition them, but they have to uh, basically transition that to the Lua framework um, in order to you know continue using those. If you haven't learned Lua yet, get started today so you can transition before the 30th. So you've mentioned a couple things that I want to dig into. One is this focus on local control, and the other is this focus on being able to share things. We've talked about being able to run using the Lua driver, so there'll still be the component of local control on the hub, which I do think is important. Um, but two, let's talk about why y'all switched to this API framework and kind of how that's going to help share things. Because I think it's really hard for people, when I set people up on their smart home, they're like, okay, now what do I do? And I, I just want to be like, here, let me give you a link to all of the rules engines that I use that seem to work for me, right? But you can't do that yet. So let's talk about why that. Yeah, well, um, there's two parts to this. You know, there's the, the Groovy-based smart apps, and then there's also the device type handlers. And there's really been this kind of a copy-paste community, really, that's that's uh, happened within DTHs or even, even smart apps where... Um, you know, you, you go find one online, copy it, paste it into the IDE, make your modifications and use it. And one of the big things that we're introducing with the Lua-based uh, framework is that there's now a concept of driver sharing. So previously, people copy and pasted code around to distribute custom device type handlers. With SmartThings Edge, we introduce driver sharing, which is really an easy to use and more time efficient alternative for community distribution and consumption. So, so now SmartThings users can share custom device drivers with a simple web link. And so you eliminate the need to copy and paste code. Device manufacturers are still encouraged to submit their drivers to SmartThings for 
our Works with SmartThings certification and distribution via the SmartThings catalog, but they can also use the driver sharing feature to distribute custom drivers that partners may want to test before it's officially released. So that's one thing that really is um, attempting to solve, you know, one of the problems that you mentioned, which is when you get started, wouldn't it be nice to just be able to share those custom uh, drivers easily with people without, you know, having to uh, go around and copy and paste code all the time? I remember all the way back, like in 2013, 20, I think it was 2013 CES or 2014 CES, the CEO of Samsung at the time did this wonderful talk about everything being interoperable. And it was ahead of the SmartThings acquisition. And it talked about, you know, he t- he envisioned this future where your Samsung appliances would work with other appliances and everything would talk to everything. We're obviously not there yet. I think matter will help in some cases, but let's talk about how smart things, let's talk about that vision and how smart things will fit into that vision. Yeah, that is still, you know, that, that vision of interoperability and really a truly seamlessly interconnected smart home, you know, is something that we are passionately pursuing as much now as we were, you know, back eight years ago. I think this industry movement with matter is, it, it is very exciting. You know, it's, um, you know, really unprecedented in the smart home space in the last decade to have so many companies coming together around one interoperability standard, uh, that really is going to move the needle forward. So very excited about that, but you're right. We have a lot of work to do and we're not there, you know, by no means are we, uh, there yet in terms of that, um, you know, having that vision be completely, you know, a reality. So we, we intend to support uh, Matter on all of our uh, SmartThings hub-based uh, platforms uh, that way. And, and even the, the launch of things which we talked about just a few minutes ago around edge drivers and rules APIs, those are, those are connected too because those are the first steps forward in um, putting those pieces in place where, you know, if you have edge drivers that can run locally, then... That works, of course, for Z-Wave, Zigbee devices. When there's Matter devices, those can also run locally too. And so it, it really sets the stage for really integrating Matter in within that in a way that you know we're very excited about. And speaking of that, your hubs right now, they're not going to have thread. So I believe I, I read, I think in an interview you did with The Verge, that your existing hubs are going to support Matter, but they're not going to act as like a Matter controller. Could you kind of explain that for me, please? Yes. So in terms of being a Matter uh, controller, we, just to clarify, we will support Matter controller on SmartThings hubs. So that's like V2, V3, AOTech. And we also intend to bring Matter controller to other Samsung services, including Galaxy devices, TVs, and family hub fridges. You know, what we have said is that we are not planning to support Matter Bridge. That would um, essentially enable other ecosystems to control smart things, hub-connected ZigBee and Z-Wave devices. Uh, there's a lot of work that's involved with that in terms of uh, translating smart things capabilities to the um, to Matter. Language and it doesn't it doesn't make sense uh, for us. But matter controller is something that we're we're very uh, committed to. Um, the specific details around um, protocol support when it comes to when you know which products um, what will become available. That's not something 
that I can uh, talk about right now at this time in terms of that forward-looking roadmap, but we will share that uh, more soon. And we have the Samsung Developers Conference coming up soon in mid-October, and so we'll have more announcements about all of that uh, there at that event. So stay tuned for that. Awesome. Just to add a little bit of clarity to that. So if I am running, for example, a SmartThings hub that has the Z-Wave and Zigbee, that can become a matter controller, but I won't be able to have matter devices talk to my Z-Wave devices through this? Um, okay, so just to clarify, so yes, yeah, you have... <laughs> there's a Sorry, <laughs> like, wait a second. <laughs> no, it's good. So there's, um, so the matter devices can talk to Zigbee and Z-Wave uh, devices. So if they work, if it works with SmartThings together, there's, there's built-in interoperability there within SmartThings. There's a specific concept around Matter Bridge, which essentially is like a ecosystem to ecosystem bridge concept. In that situation, like a different ecosystem, if we supported Matter Bridge, would be able to control SmartThings hub connected devices like Zigbee and Z-Wave. And that is, that's not something that we're planning to support. But as, as long as you're within the SmartThings, ecosystem. I mean, the, the key focus here is, is matter devices. So if you, if, uh, if the ecosystem supports matter, which we do and we will, then any matter device is, it's, is sort of, um, certified by default by being a matter device. It, it works with that ecosystem. And within smart things, we also support Zigbee and Z-Wave devices. And so all of those will work together within smart things. It's really, it's a more nuanced um, kind of ecosystem to ecosystem uh, part around the matter bridge that I was speaking to before. Okay. And when I think about matter, one of the things I'm excited about is we kind of level set for the smart home. And from there, we're going to start seeing companies build services, hopefully. I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, security services, aging in place. I, I'm really excited about energy monitoring. So can you talk about the plans that SmartThings has there? Because y'all have such a huge array of devices. I feel like there's some really compelling things that y'all could build there if that's of interest. Absolutely. And this is, this is honestly one of the big reasons why we're so excited about Matter is because what it enables. When you think about it over the last 10 years, uh, SmartThings has been so focused on interoperability and just getting all kinds of different types of devices working together to unify the smart home. But with Matter, that really comes together into a very clear standard that makes that uh, work better than it ever has. And so when you think about all of that work and effort um, and time that we will now be able to focus on services, just like you said, that actually provide really meaningful value to users. This is what, you know, even two years ago when we talked, Stacey, I, I talked about um, services and experiences, and that was that was what we were trying trying to get to. And that is really what I'm very excited about because that's that's the things that can make big differences in users' lives. When you think about smart things abilities that we already have in this area, so smart things energy is something we already um, have today, and we're working very hard to improve that. And we'll have more announcements on that um, over time. Other services as well that are coming that um, that I can't uh, speak to here today, uh, but that will be coming. And we're very excited about those. But when you think about what SmartThings is and 
this incredible ecosystem of partners that we have. And then with the addition of, of matter, which opens that up even further, but you pair that with one of the world's best brands in consumer electronics with Samsung, there are really things that we can do in services that no one else in the world can do. And so we're, we're very excited about that. And that is, that is really, um, the layer up the stack, so to speak, that uh, by solving problems at the interoperability and connectivity layer really open up just um, immense um, opportunity for creating um, services, like you said, that that users will really value. Excellent. All right. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. I look forward to the updated version of Smart Things. Sounds good. Thanks, Stacey. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe. 